everyone. I am excited to get back to recording episodes for the podcast. I skipped last week because my mental health was giving me some trouble. So I just decided to give myself a little bit of a break. But um, worry not, I am doing all of my self-care and everything like that. I'm actually getting ready to meet with a um, psychiatric nurse practitioner to um, talk about, you know, some of my anxiety medications. And I'm actually doing this really cool, um, it's like genetic testing where they like swab you and basically they can run your DNA to determine like what mental health medications are possibly beneficial to you, which ones might have some cause for concern and which ones are in the danger zone. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing that and I will definitely, um, be sure to share about that experience on my blog. Um, so stay tuned for that. Uh, per usual, we have my dog Zion snoring in the background and today is actually episode number one of the summer book club. So for those of you who have listened to this podcast for a while, you know, that last summer, I did a summer book club series where I basically um, used, uh, I talked about books that uh, had mental health implications, um, and I made sure that all of the books were by uh, authors of color. Uh, And so this year, I'm doing the same thing, um, and I'm excited to start it off with Viola Davis's new memoir called Finding Me. And uh, I'm splitting this series into four episodes. I came up with four um, main categories of how I'm going to talk about this book on the podcast. Um, And so today's episode is titled Environment. Um, So I'm going to be talking about the uh, environment that Viola Davis uh, grew up in. Next week's episode will be about specifically her experiences with racism. The following episode will talk about trauma and mental health. And then the final episode I've titled Hope. And that is going to be, you know, kind of ending everything on a a positive note to kind of give some context as to how things worked out and how Viola Davis overcame the many adversities that she's faced. I really, really enjoyed this book. So without further delay, I'm going to hop in with the first episode, which I'm going to talk a little bit about the environment that um, Viola Davis grew up in. So to begin, I want to share a little bit um, about the family dynamic. So Viola Davis grew up with... uh, a mother and a father and siblings, um, but it was not always peaceful at home. Um, there was a lot of domestic violence. There was infidelity, a lot of drama, you could say. So to start off, I want to um, share a little bit about Viola Davis's perspectives on the the infidelity part and how that impacted uh, the family unit. The father would actually take Viola with him when he would go see his mistress um, and basically like gave her some money and told her, um, don't, don't tell your mom about this. Right. 
Um, so this, that's where this quote is picking up from. So my father would emerge after a long time and repeat, don't tell your mama where we've been. As soon as we got home, my mom asked, where y'all been? And then she would say, we were at Patricia's house and all hell would break loose. I wish that my mama could have acquired the tools to imagine a life free from that sort of pain rejecting everything her family had instilled in her about marriage and never giving up, never leaving your man, even if he cheats, putting up with abuse. I imagine that if she had the language and the wherewithal, she would have simply said, help me, guide me. But even grown with multiple children, she was still that little 15-year-old black girl from the backwoods of South Carolina who got pregnant and married before she could legally drive. End quote. So that segment gives a little bit of context, um, and I'll go into the extent of the the poverty situation next because it definitely shapes her upbringing and um, viewpoints on a lot of things. Um, and as someone who grew up with very few means myself, um, I definitely resonate with a lot of her story. Um, and so much that, you know, she gets to the point where she's older and she's able to like care for herself and, um, you know, live independently. But the, um, I guess the survival complex that kind of forms when you're, you're living from, you know, paycheck to paycheck or not even that, but just living, um, on a very, um, unstable grounding. So here's a little bit um, about the family's financial situation. Quote, we were po. That's a level lower than poor. I've heard some of my friends say we were poor too, but I just didn't know it until I got older. We were poor and we knew it. There was absolutely no disputing it. It was reflected in the apartments we lived in, where we shopped for clothes and furniture, the food stamps that were never enough to fully feed us, and the welfare checks. We were po. We almost never had a phone. The plumbing was shoddy, so the toilets never flush. Actually, I don't ever remember toilets working in our apartments. I became very skilled at filling up a bucket and pouring it into the toilet to flush it. And with our gas constantly being cut off because of non-payment, we would either go unwash or would just wipe ourselves down with cold water. And even the wiping down was a chore because we were often without towels, soap, shampoo. I damn sure didn't know the difference between a washcloth and a bath towel, end quote. So <clears throat> you kind of get more context there. I'm actually going to talk about the implications on hygiene and how that impacted Viola and her siblings um, later on in this episode. But uh, one of, I guess, a, a bright point of this poverty that they grew up in is that school was kind of a respite from the, the challenges of living in poverty um, and I, like I said, I usually tend to choose books that I resonate well with. Um, but I remember loving to go to school because um, there was stability. It was, you know, um, 
it, it was a safe environment. There were people there that, you know, care about you. Um, I was able to uh, get breakfast and lunch uh, oftentimes at school. Um, so I definitely uh, can see why school was her safe haven. So, quote, I love going to school. School was our haven. And then she goes on to share a story about how school really um, uh, was a way to get away from the challenges going on at home. So she says, it was in the dead of winter and we had no heat. Mind you, she's in uh, Rhode Island, um, so very cold in the winter. Uh, Next, the electricity was cut off. And then we had no phone. It just kept escalating. When you have no heat, no gas, you have no hot water. It was sub-zero weather, freezing, absolutely freezing. And the pipes froze, so there was no running water. We couldn't even flush the toilet. To make matters worse, we were all extreme bedwetters. Not going to school was unheard of for us. Side note, the bedwetting... Um, is kind of a theme throughout the book and it's very likely related to the traumas that um, the family endured but we'll get to that later Um, so continuing on mama was lost just lost didn't know what to do no running water pipes frozen no heat no phone we clutched together all shivering and somewhere around midday my sister diane stood up and announced i'm going to school She spat on her hand, she wiped all the mucus out of her eyes, and asked, how do I look? My mama said, you look good, ma, using her southern term. You look beautiful, ma. Okay, all right, I'm going to school. And she went, you know, when you're poor, you live in an alternate reality. It's not that we have problems different from everyone else, but we don't have the resources to mask them. We've been stripped clean of social protocol. There's an understanding that everyone is trying to survive and who is going to get in the way of that. Central Falls was my home, but it was also a minefield. It was a small town where you're constantly trying to dodge little and big explosions that could level you while trying to occupy space in it and be somebody. It was an emotional war zone made worse by the war zone at home. I didn't know what boundaries were. I was constantly doing messed up shit to be seen, exercising any semblance of power and authority I had to feel alive. I wanted to squeeze out any level of joy and laughs I could. But the worst part is, deep inside, there was a demon, another part of me that was wrestling with the alive me. She, the demon, kept whispering, you're not good. But the other part, the fighter, the survivor, screamed back a resounding no, end quote. So from what I've shared so far, we see very difficult um, origin story here for Viola Davis, her family, and her siblings. So we've got uh, domestic violence, we've got poverty, we've got, um, you know, unlivable housing conditions. Um, I haven't gotten to a quote with it yet, but there were huge rats and um, just very, um, very difficult environment. 
Um, and so from a mental health standpoint, um, I've always found this interesting. Um, well, I, I'll say, I'll start by saying this, the brain is the most technologically advanced thing that we'll ever see. Um, more than any computer, iPhone, whatever, because it has the ability to adapt itself to various conditions. So um, one of the ways that um, Viola and her siblings would deal with their hard life was to dissociate. Um, and in um, a, on a lot of social media and just like pop culture now, people are misusing the term dissociation. Dissociation means that you check out from um, yourself um, and it can exist at various different levels. Um, it could just be a, a brief experience or it could be something that is diagnosable, but that's not what we're here for today. But the point is, I'm going to share next about some of the ways that um, the kids in this story dissociated from this harsh environment that I just described. So, quote, sometimes we would go to the bar back in the day when parents could take kids to the bar and play darts and pool and be treated to Sprite and potato chips. These happy moments would soon be followed by trauma. The rage of my dad's alcoholic binges, violence, poverty, hunger, and isolation. In my child's mind, I was the problem. I would retreat to the bathroom, put something against the door so no one would come in, and I'd sit for an inordinate amount of time staring at my fingers and hands and try to erase everything in my mind. I wish I could, ele I wish I could elevate out of my body. Leave it. One time, when I was about nine years old, I succeeded. I left it, my body that is, in a manner of speaking. I floated up to the ceiling, looking down at myself, observing my hair, my legs, and my face. Then I faced myself staring directly into me. Wow, I loved it. It was a magical secret power, only I didn't see myself as, a mag as magical or powerful. I just felt free. It was my way of disappearing. It was my high. I couldn't always control this out-of-body sense, but when I could, it was beyond fabulous. The power to leave my body, to be relieved of Viola for a while, was an ever-present image that followed me for decades. I never liked how it ended, though. These out-of-body experiences would always seem to stop abruptly. I would come crashing down, like in the movies where someone has telekinetic powers and would lift an item but couldn't concentrate anymore, so the item would come crashing down. I was out of my body and suddenly back in it. I tried to compartmentalize, to dodge those heavy emotions until I couldn't. The power was temporary. Even now, me and Dolores have dreams about 128, which is the nickname for one of the apartments that they lived in. It created the backdrop for bonds of sisterhood. 128 was a womb of sisterhood. At night, we sisters would huddle up on top, on a top bunk for warmth, horrified at the sounds of rodents eating pigeons on the roof, eating our toys, squealing, and when we felt the weight 
of their bodies as they jumped on our bed searching for something to eat. We would wrap bed sheets around our necks to protect ourselves from bites. Going to the bathroom at night in the midst of this was not an option. Cutting on the lights and watching them scurry was not an option because there were no lights in the part of the apartment we slept. The bathroom was a faraway place on the other side of the apartment, but it may as well have been on the other side of the world. If if you didn't go before bed, you could forget making that journey at night. So we just peed. We dreamed away our problems. When dad was drunk or there was turmoil, my sister Dolores and I would disappear into the bedroom and become Jaja and Jaji, rich white Beverly Hill matrons with big jewels and little chihuahuas. We would play this game for hours. We played in such detail that it became transcendent. We played with the backdrop noise of our mom being beaten and screaming in pain, but we believed we were in that world until eventually Dolores would break the spell saying, you're not Jaja, you're poor, you're on welfare, you don't have diamonds. We'd fight and the game of pretend would be over until the next time there was a family tumult. It was how we escaped. We transformed into people we felt were better, people who existed in a world we only dreamed of, women who were not us. We played for fun and out of desperation. Jaja and Jaji were pretend were our pretend protection. End quote. There's a couple of things here. I, I mentioned the rodents, and I had mentioned earlier how uh, Viola and her siblings um, were all bedwetters. Um, and in addition to um, you know, as a therapist, a lot of times when uh, kids or adolescents are bedwetters, sometimes um, there are links to trauma. Uh, and so it's safe to say that that is part of what's going on here. But also, like she said in the last quote, if there's rats all over the place, you know, you can't, can't just hop down from the bed and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. So it became a situation where they had to basically go on themselves and act like, you know, it wasn't happening. But if you pair that with what um, they were saying about not having adequate hot water and the money for soap and things like that, obviously it's going to create some problems. And I'm not sure about that next, um, a kind of the judgment and the stigma that um, Viola and her siblings felt due to their poverty, which was completely um, out of their control. Zion is in a deep level of sleep right now. You can hear the very loud snoring. Um, so yeah, uh, and on top of that, um, you know, that they would kind of escape into pretend, whether it be pretending to be somebody else. Um, and this kind of alludes to the episode I'm going to do on racism, but um, their belief was that, you know, if you were white and rich, you, you wouldn't have problems. Um, and that, that was one of the ways that they checked out. But then also you heard the part about how Viola would, um, you know, basically lock herself in the bathroom and kind of, um, dissociate herself and, um, kind of, you know, 
levitate from her body, so to speak, mentally, um, just to take a break. And what I was saying about the brain, it has the ability to adapt. Um, One of the things that's always fascinated me as a therapist with, you know, working with people who've been through different traumas and adversities and stuff like that, and um, just hearing about how, you know, you, you hear stories about how like people kind of check out or they black out during something really bad. Um, now granted trauma is not a good thing. Um, but I have always been fascinated with the fact that the brain has kind of like a safety switch where things shut down or don't, uh, convert to memory to protect itself from the brunt of whatever trauma is coming its way. Um, and so we can definitely see that here, especially as they're, you know, um, trying to either sleep or, um, you know, pretend so, to, to block out the sounds of their mom being beaten or, you know, the, the stress of having all these rats. Um, at one point in the book, it talked about how the rats would eat the faces off of, um, their toys and dolls and stuff like that. It's, um, these are not just like a, a random house mouse or something. These were like gigantic rodents. Um, but next we're, I'm going to move into kind of some of the implications of poverty in the judgment that Viola and her siblings faced. And this is very important for kind of setting the tone for the rest of the, the review of this book. Um, because, you know, kind of, we are a product of our environment. Um, and so it will give you some context as to why, um, Viola felt certain ways about certain things as she moved through adolescence, young adulthood and adulthood, even up until this day, quote, my teacher who I loved kept staring at me. Whenever I moved closer to her to answer a question, she would step back. Then I saw her talking to the teacher next door. Only a door separated the classes, so they would talk in the doorway. On this day, they whispered and looked at me. Finally, when we got in a circle to read, I ran to sit next to her, and she leaned back with a distressed look on her face. She then gestured for me and whispered in my ear, You need to tell your mother to get some soap and water and wash you. The odor is horrible. And she shooed me away as if I had vomited on her. I was numb. A few minutes later, I was called to the nurse's office. When I walked in, I saw Dolores. The nurse hadn't arrived yet. Dolores was sitting in a chair in front of the nurse's desk, and she was catatonic. She obviously was called in for the same reason. I whispered, Dolores, oh my God, can you believe but I never finished because she told me to shut up and she put her head down again. The nurse came in and gave a whole lecture of the complaints from teachers about our hygiene. She asked how we washed up. We said nothing. We were trained in the art of keeping secrets and we never ever shared with anyone what went on in our home ever. Side note, this is very characteristic of black families. Um, And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but it was worth mentioning. Anyway, she then proceeded to tell us how you should never wear the same underwear twice, how to wash up, how to use soap, and what areas to wash first. 
Then we went home. It's funny that in the complaints about hygiene, no one ever asked us about our home environment. No one asked us if we were okay or if anything was wrong. No one talked to us. There was a lack of intentional investment in us little black girls. A few people would drop what they called useful affirmations like, work hard, stay in school and do good, be great, behave, and don't get in trouble. There was an expectation of perfectionism without the knowledge of emotional well-being. What it left in me was confusion. When you're a poor kid growing up with trauma, no one is quipping, no one is equipping you with tools to do better, to make a life. And so then she goes on to talk about the further implications. So not only are, um, you know, due to the poverty, there's a really rough home situation, um, sanitary conditions. Now in their safe haven school, they're being um, othered and kind of pushed away due to uh, factors that are completely outside of their control. Um, and you can imagine the shame and guilt and um, just uh, low self-esteem that could come from this. So Viola goes on to say, quote, the invisibility of the one-two punch that is blackness and poverty is brutal. Mix that with being hungry all the damn time and it becomes combustible. If you're hungry, you can't focus. You have no energy. School lunch was our stable, assured meal. The food stamps our family received the first each month paid for a grocery run, but the food soon ran out. When it was gone, my sisters and I mooched off the families of friends and dumpster dived, rummaging through garbage for food. We would befriend kids whose mothers cooked three meals a day and go to their homes when I could. One time, a friend came over to our house, and when she opened the refrigerator and saw there was nothing in it, asked, Are you guys moving? I shoplifted food. I was nine the last time I stole food from a store. That day, I was caught slipping a brownie down the front of my pants, but I never got it out of the store because the owner screamed at me, looking at me as looking at me like I was nothing. Get out, go away, and never come back. The shame forced me to stop. The experience of going to bed hungry is something that neither my sisters nor I will ever forget. I messed up all the time. I hid my feelings, my anger, and pain, or I lashed out and got into fights. Detention every day. Back talk with teachers. I pushed a teacher once. I wanted attention really bad. I didn't know the butterflies that were ever present in the pit of my gut were actually massive anxiety. I felt I just didn't fit in. I was a whirling dervish of complexity and emotions. And then she goes on to talk about how her peers treated her. So we know how the teachers kind of reacted. Despite, um, she does talk at one point, and I think I will cover this in the Hope episode, um, about the few exceptions of school staff that were very kind to Viola and her family, um, knowing their situation. Um, But it was more so a lot of teachers and stuff that were very judgmental and um, made, you know, them feel less than. So here's one example. 
quote, no one wanted to drink from the bubbler after me. Bubla or bubbler was the Rhode Island term for water fountain. My classmates would always wait for the teacher to turn her head and whisper, yuck, I'm not drinking after that nigga. You're dirty. This would both shut me down and anger me. One day, I tried to rip the pretty yellow dress off Maria, a Portuguese girl who used the word nigga with impunity. My teacher punished me. I tried to explain, but she said there was no explanation. This was a teacher I loved, for whom I stayed after school once and volunteered to clean the chalkboard. She was young and pretty. I felt she liked me. This, unfortunately, was an illusion. I created a phantom to survive. End quote. And so the next episode of this podcast is going to go more in depth about the racism that Viola and her family um, endured. Um, but this is an example of how your peers treat you when you're unable to access the resources that they have, such as, you know, clean clothes, uh, regular access to hygiene and food and things like that. Um, and the basically being bullied and, um, you know, pushed away by your peers, um, due to something that is completely, you know, out of your control, um, and on top of that, you have um, the use of, you know, racial slurs and, and stuff like that. It is, um, I'm sure that this medley of quotes that I've shared has painted a pretty um, good depiction of what that upbringing was like. But to conclude this episode, I want to talk about how um, some of these origins, you know, in childhood and adolescence of living in these kinds of conditions um, followed her to adulthood. So, quote, Mine was a journey getting through college, even, in a, even after surviving that freshman year depression. I was on my own. There was a food program during the week, but not during the weekends. There it is, food again. There was something about the inability to get food that made me feel that I was slipping back into my fucked up childhood. I always felt like I was foraging for it from Friday evening to Monday morning. Imagine what it's like when you don't have a weekend meal plan. Worse off, you don't have a family who can send you a care package or a home where you can drop in for a kitchen slash laundry room raid. Imagine you don't have one of those little refrigerators in your room packed with food to carry you through the days when the cafeteria is closed. The result, the hunger pains of poverty. To combat that, I always had a lot of jobs. I worked as an RA and counselor in the preparatory enrollment program during the summer. I always worked. Senior year, I had four jobs while in school full-time. I worked in the college library. I worked at the Rhode Island College front desk. I continued working at Brooks Drugs in Central Falls, and I had one other on-campus job. Working at Brooks Drugs required me to leave campus, get on a bus, and schlep to Central Falls. Envision you have to work full-time but don't have a car. So you have to take three or four buses one way in sub-zero weather to get to a damn job that's 
four or five towns away from campus in order to make enough money to eat on the weekend. Working hard is great when it's motivated by passion and love and enthusiasm, but working hard when it's motivated by deprivation is not pleasant, end quote. And so to reflect on that, um, I, y'all know by now I love memoirs. Um, and I think what's been really healing for me as an adult to have access to books and to be able to read these stories of, uh, you know, people that have, you know, grown up to do great things. Um, I find it very inspirational, but one thing that really resonated me with that last quote was the, um, need to work several jobs. I remember when I was in college, I always had at least two jobs. Um, and I believe by my junior and senior year, I had four. Yes. Um, and so I, when I read that, I was like, oh my goodness, she had a very similar, um, experience that I did, um, in having to work all of these things. And I remember, um, for me, uh, I went to a, a college, it was a private school. It was very, uh, affluent folks, um, that came from money and, I remember almost like completely checking out from the um, kind of social components. I just went to class and then I was working when I wasn't in class. But I went to, I, I took full-time classes. I had a major and a minor. Um, so, and I always, I always um, kept my grades up and everything like that, but I was also working a ton. Um, and I think that's one of the things I wouldn't say that I grieve it or um, wish that I could go back and have it any differently, but I just remember not even having time to think about how I was missing out on, you know, uh, hanging out and, you know, going to parties and attending different, you know, events and stuff like that, sporting events at the school, because when I wasn't in school, I was focused on my survival. Um so I, through, you know, though my upbringing was not as extreme um, and, quote, Poe as Viola Davis was, I see a lot of myself and her um, origin story. So this episode, I like I said, I'm calling it environment. So while it was very, um, it wasn't so cheerful, um, this sets the tone for the rest of the um uh, book club series that I'm going to do on this book. So um, thank you for listening. Next week, I'm going to get into Viola Davis's uh, unique experiences with racism. And then from there, we're going to, um, future episodes are going to focus on like trauma and mental health. Um, Viola Davis does attend therapy um, and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Um, and then the final episode is about hope. It's how things um, started to turn around and um, kind of the insights that were gained along the way. So definitely stay tuned. Um, but until the next time, thank you so much for listening and take care. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance. 
Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast, and best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today.